improve their communication skills so they can help more people and help people more. I'm your host Dr Martin Harvey, I'm a chiropractor and I'm an expert in communicating the value of chiropractic. I have been deeply immersed in all things first 12 visits lately because I have just launched the Retention Recipe 2.0. I'll go into some of the details of how the program's structured and so on later on. What I wanted to do though was, whether you sign up for that or not, give you some key principles, four of them, that will allow you to upgrade the effectiveness of your first visit today. And so it's super important to do a great job on the first visit because, well, you only get one chance to make a great first impression. But if we look at it through the lens of retention, if we look at it through the lens of people get the best results from us if they're seeing us for a, over a longer period of time, there's some things that you need to establish on the first visit to increase the chance of that happening. And so I'll be looping back and going through four strategies that you can use to upgrade your first visit. Um, and uh, breaking it down so that you can do a better job later today or tomorrow. So a few things in terms of housekeeping, things where you can uh, join me in upgrading your communication skills. I will have the Communication to Improve Patient Care workshop in partnership with the UCA on November 20th, uh, 21st rather, and 24th via webinar. Um, it's evening time, UK time, to be able to satisfy the GCC direction to do learning with others regarding communication, you'd need to be on those calls live. If you just want the content, because it's all about how to do a better job of uh, helping people change their health belief and also encouraging them to change their behaviour, all things that align with all the discussions we've had here, you can do it by the recordings. The link is in the show notes. Uh, As I'm recording this, it's only a couple of days out from the Kids Summit in uh, Sydney. It's on September 10th and 11th. I'll be presenting along with a really phenomenal lineup. You can attend in person if you are close by, or you can join via the, uh, the link. So again, the link to participate is in the show notes. There's a code if you put my initials, MH and 100, in you get $100 off your registration. So hope to see you there. Okay, so if we look at the retention recipe 2.0, really it's about learning to confidently communicate the value of proactive chiropractic. So uh, prevention and performance oriented chiropractic in the first 12 visits. Uh, The whole program's got 33 lessons, more than seven hours of video content. Um, As with all of my stuff, it's based on state-of-the-art influence strategies that allow, it's a fun way of practicing, it's enjoyable, it's effective, and most importantly, it's ethical. And I'd love it if you want to join me on the journey. Uh, It's online, so it's available on demand. Again, the link is in the show notes. What I'd like to do, whether you choose to be part of the Retention Recipe 2.0 or not, is give you some of the most important elements so you can do it yourself if you don't want to do the Retention Recipe 2.0. So there's a few things that we have to do if we want people to be with us long term. 
In, in terms of sort of simple models from the influence literature, we've spoken about this previously, there's really two systems of thinking that we're using, two systems for uh, decision making. Kahneman talks about them as system one and system two. Those of you who've been listening to the last few episodes will notice that I've moved over to using Zoe Chance's version of these, which is the judge brain and the gator brain. So the gator brain is the sort of intuitive, fast decision making that we make where we sort of go by how things feel. Oh, that just doesn't seem quite right or that does seem right. And it saves us a lot of energy. So it's the predominant way that we make most of our decisions. The judge brain is the part of our thinking where we are analysing things. We're weighing up what level of evidence there is for something. We're weighing up the risks and benefits for us. So it's a more structured way of uh, looking at things and because it requires a lot of focus, it requires a lot of energy, so we're, we prefer not to do it, um, but it's certainly there. Now, the truth is that for a lot of situations we want to do a bit of both, but the emotional part, the, the gator part, trumps the logic, meaning if something seems, feels right, we'll go looking for logical reasons to support that decision. If something seems wrong or the person that is proposing something to us, you know, don't quite think that they're quite right, then we will go looking for reasons which, that show that it doesn't make sense. So really we've got to make sure that with our communication on a first visit that we're satisfying both with a bias towards making sure that we're satisfying the gator brain. We're not giving them anything to be concerned about too early on. And in chiropractic, we need to be even more aware of this because we are we have a, a kind of a mixed a, a mixed uh, perspective or a mixed reputation in uh, the community. So connected to that gator brain, people are naturally risk averse. So if we we tend to be overly concerned about losing things rather than making some sort of gain and we and connected to that we have a status quo bias if we're at all uncertain we stick with what we know we stick with what we're um, familiar with so all of these things create potential challenges for chiropractic because we have a different view of health than the predominant one and so if we do anything wrong in terms of making the person feel safe or making them feel like we're somebody who's credible or caring about them, then it's highly likely that they'll choose not to see us for the long term. They might see us, if they're coming to see us with some particular pain, then they may choose to see us for that pain. But in terms of making that shift in thinking, in terms of getting out of the status quo perspective, We've got to make sure that emotionally that feels like something that that we're the right person and we're not uh, triggering any, uh, oh, I'm not quite sure about this sort of reactions. So essentially there's two things that we need to do to satisfy the judge brain and the gator brain. We need to be, from an emotional perspective, the gator brain, they've got to feel safe and they've also got to feel like we're somebody who has their best interests. Now, um, connected to that, they need to be sort of seen as a person. So we often talk about um, procedure, uh, people before procedure. 
and they've also got to feel connected. So remembering when we've discussed this previously, we are wired with these cavemen who are wired to have a strong value around social connections, to feel that the people in our tribe have our best interests. And if you're not in my tribe, you probably don't, I probably don't trust you as much. So we're looking for opportunities to really early on make sure that we're connecting with them as people and we're not because we're coming into it just busy and um, in the middle of our kind of work day and we don't this isn't new to us um, it's easy for us to sort of come in and and just like not kind of make that connection straight off the bat so really important that we have strategies that allow that to happen kind of seamlessly then in terms of satisfying the gator brain um, we've got to have strategies that allow us to have them create, have a high level of perceived value of our service. Now, a lot of that will be presenting in the second visit, but we need to create the their experience, change their experience so that they have a high level of perceived value. And I'll look back and talk more about that in a moment. So the first essential thing that we've got to do is really early on in the um, experience that people have in our office, we've got to create a degree of connection. We've got to create a way that people feel seen and they feel valued as a person and they feel a sense of connection to us that we're part of the same tribe. Now, there's a bunch of different ways that we can do this uh, and we go through a lot of it in the Retention Recipe 2.0, but a couple of things that you can make sure that you do uh, to make sure that you come and meet the person and have eye contact and touch as quickly as possible because they're ways of very quickly creating a sense of intimacy and connection and you can imagine as cavemen they're things that you would do with people in your tribe and you wouldn't do with people who aren't in your tribe. Um, connected to that we also want to create a, a, a way of finding commonality. So there's a bunch of ways that we talk about in the retention recipe. One of them would be that um, creating a connection if the person's been referred by talking about that. So it might go something like, so Andrea, I see that Beck referred you. How do you guys know each other? Oh, you guys go have kids at the same preschool. Oh, well, you guys must be super busy with uh, running around after kids who are four and five. That, that I remember those days vividly. Uh, and so Beck, she's lovely, isn't she? Yeah, we've, we've known her for a number of years. Oh, I'm thrilled that she's recommended you to us. So what we're doing there in a very quick discussion is creating a very strong sense of connection because we're both part of the, the tribe of people who appreciate the, the, that it's a challenging time having preschool kids, that it's a lovely time, but there's a lot of energy that goes into it. We're part of the tribe of people who appreciate Beck and what a lovely person that she is. And um, so we create this sense of connection. And it's super interesting when we look at this idea of commonality. So Cialdini talks about it quite a lot. Uh, and he talks about the malleability of this tribal sense. So we, we'll feel a sense of connection with people who we perceive as being in our tribe for the most arbitrary of reasons. So if somebody shares our name, we will tend to have a much higher opinion of them. 
if we even have the same first letter of our first name, we'll tend to have a much higher level of regard for them. So, you know, I would have a higher level of regard for people called Michael or Mark than I would people called David, for instance. Now, you probably will have experienced it if you've been overseas and you've run into somebody from your home country, then you'll feel a sense of connection and commonality with people that you might never have the same sense of back at home. And we can have that in terms of appreciation of a sport or even a team within that sport. But I guess the point that I'm making here is, first of all, it's super important that people feel that sense of connection. And secondly, there's a lot of different ways that you can create a sense of commonality. Now, there's a lot more that you can do to create connection, but in terms of just illustrating the idea, that's where we're going. Now, before we move on, part of the reason that this is so important is that there's a lot of opportunities for us not to connect on a first visit. You see, the person coming in is in a very different state to us. They're often anxious. They're in a new environment. They have a health issue that they're they're most likely at least some degree concerned about. They're coming into an environment that uh, there's some, they're probably aware of some controversy and often the sense that, oh, is this, is this going to be safe? What are they going to do? Will I be able to keep all my clothes on? All of these concerns that are swimming around in their head. On the other hand, we're coming into an environment that we're very familiar with and we have a different perspective around what we're doing often. So for people coming in, they're often, this is a place where I'll get my back cracked for the pain. Whereas we have a perspective around, this is a place where we gently and specifically help the body work to a higher level. So um, there's a, a mismatch there where it's easy not to create a connection. There's also the fact that we're just busy and we've got the logistics to deal with of I'm running late and I've got that x-ray that I need to look at and I haven't done the notes for that person and I just had that conversation and then you're coming into this environment that uh, you, you suddenly need to change gears to that to create that connection. So really it's important that you have a little pause before you you meet a new person in your practice and just have that opportunity, all right, I need to prioritise the human side of this in connection. Connected to that, I typically recommend that you have a procedure where you go out to reception and meet people there, eye contact, shake their hands, use their name, and then move them into a consult area where you do this idea of creating a sense of commonality with them rather than having them ushered into some closed room that you come into, just because we want to make sure that they're that we're, the people before procedure part of it is uh, is maintained. So in the reception area, it's a neutral environment. Um, whereas as soon as they're in sort of a clinical area, it doesn't. It feels less uh, certain, and particularly if they're left alone there while they're waiting for you. So there's our first essential. We've got to create a sense of connection. I'm going to jump through a couple of steps with the retention recipe and go to kind of the second big piece of it, which is when we start our consultation, when we start talking to them about the reasons that they are there, we have often been trained to take a history in a very inquisitorial way. So there are particular questions we need to ask in terms of what's the nature of the pain, are there referrals, is there any change in bowel or bladder habit, is what makes it better, what makes it worse. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they are important questions clinically. However, they don't necessarily 
optimize for that emotional experience that the person is having. So we want to hit that first. So the mechanism to do that, the essential is to take what I call an open frame history. Um, and so what we're doing here, if we look at the surveys that are done in terms of the people's needs, people's expectations, people's hopes for the first visit when they hear when they see a health provider, one of them their number one need, desire is to be heard. And this sort of inquisitorial history makes it very difficult because as soon as they say anything, we're then kind of not so much interrupting, but we're very much boxing it into a very narrow frame. Whereas an open frame is uh, the approach that I teach is to really just say, so, uh, so Andrea, uh, just I see that you're here on the form, you've got some issues with headaches. Why don't you just start by telling me everything about your headaches? And then I'm just eye contact, listening, maybe taking a few notes. And then when she slows down, because she's been sort of trained by the cultural expectation that she's had with healthcare providers, that I'm going to interrupt and ask her our questions, um, as soon as she slows down, I'll just say, so anything else? And then often there'll be a second group of things that she'll tell me. I'll, once that slows down, I'll ask again, anything else? And I would contend that anybody who has been asked anything else and given the stage to tell you everything, one thing for sure, they will feel heard. And then you get the opportunity to fill in the gaps with your questions. But my experience is that for most people, you get most of the history in that regard. So if we look at the third essential, it's to increase their perceived value. You see, perceived value isn't, we don't get to set what's valuable for people because um, it, in terms of everything, value is personal. So it doesn't matter how current the colour of a new lipstick, Chanel lipstick is. It doesn't matter how high grade the ingredients are. It doesn't matter that uh, some influencer or famous actress wears it. It doesn't have a whole lot of value to me because it's not part of my identity to, to use a lipstick. So similarly, people don't necessarily see a high level of value in an improved cervical curve. They don't see necessarily a high perceived value in being subluxation free. And they, and they even don't see a whole lot of value in being healthier per se. What they do have a whole lot of value in is in being able to do the things that are important to them. And so chiropractic has the potential to have very high perceived value if it helps their body work better so that they're better able to do the things that are important to them. The path to being able to connect that though, we can create the foundation for on the first visit. Now, this is a big part about what the whole process that I teach is about, but a few highlights would be um, to use unpacking questions. You see, um, People will often, when they have had a health issue, and particularly if they come from a pain level of health awareness, they've been um, what, what they call minimising uh, as a coping mechanism, where they're essentially sort of minimising the true size of the problem so that it helps as a coping mechanism to sort of separate the emotion from the experience. But if somebody's been saying, oh, look, it's not such a big deal, you know, I've got some back pain and I can't, 
get down on the floor and play with my kids. Well, you know, they're kind of little shits anyway and I can't play golf and look, it's only a game. And they, they tell themselves this story. But then when we do our examination history and we see that they've had years and years and years of spinal issues that we need to try and unwind, there's often when we're presenting our solution, there's often a mismatch in the size of the problem. And so we will use unpacking questions as a way of connecting that person to the true size of the problem so that then when we present our solution, there's more likely a match there. Um, another way thing that unpacking questions allow us to do is to get insight into what the things that are important to them in terms of their lifestyle value in that if we ask the question of what's this stopping you from doing or making it hard for you to do and then a series of other questions that we go through that help us see well Andrea is uh, her headaches are stopping her from being able to play tennis or be feel energetic and in a good mood with the kids um, to enjoy that their, her time with them or to socialize on the weekend each of those lifestyle values we need to communicate to slightly differently um, to increase the value that helping her is going to have the other way that we can create increased perceived value is by the way that we frame our examination. You see, if we just do the tests and we don't give any, we haven't pre-framed what we're looking for and what the meaning of findings are, then it's just, it, they're perceiving it through their existing uh, level of health awareness. And given that many of the people are coming to see us with just a pain level of health awareness, there, when they you find an area in their spine that is subluxated, well, that's to do with pain. If there's a restricted um, motion, if there's restricted range of motion, well, that's because it's sore. If there's an alteration in their posture or alignment of their spine on an X-ray, well, that's because it's sore. And so it's easy for them to then assume that well, when it's no longer sore, all of those things will go away. So. Super important that we use our communication around the examination to pre-frame what we're looking for and what it means when, when you can't move the same to the left as you can to the right, what it means when I find an area of the spine that's not moving properly, etc. And in that way, we're turning the examination from just something that gives us clinical um, information to an experience of their body either working or not working that is separate to what they can tell us based on their pain. And that's super important because that, first of all, has a higher level of value, but it also then aligns with high levels of health awareness, i.e. prevention in particular. So our first essential was to connect with people. Um, the second essential was to have an open frame history, both of which are really connected to that emotional or gator part of the brain. The increasing of perceived value, uh, the third essential, and there's a bunch of steps that we spoke about there in terms of unpacking questions and um, pre-framing our examination. Um, they're really about that second part satisfying the judge part of the brain. The fourth essential loops back into the emotional part. And really what this is about is making sure that if we're on the next visit going to present what our solution, what our care plan, what our recommendations are, we want to make sure that they know that it's going to be their choice. You see, one of the things that the Gator brain hates is to feel like somebody else is 
um, impinging on your right to uh, make decisions for yourself. And so if we feel, even if the judge brain has been satisfied by, yeah, this, there's enough value in choosing to have this program of care, if they feel like they've been pushed into things that they didn't want to do or that you're unduly influencing them, they'll choose not to do it even, or they'll bail really early on in it um, because it creates a, what's called reactance. And so the, the strategies that we have built in there, one is what's called the Yes Yes Consult, where we basically just go through a specific sequence early on in the discussion to make sure that they know what's happening. I'm going to ask you these questions, we're going to do this testing, then on the next visit we'll map out a plan, um, it'll be completely up to you what you decide to do, and then combining that with frequently using autonomy statements. Would it be okay? Uh, I'd recommend this, but the, it's up to you to do exactly what's right for you. So there we have it kind of the four most important elements that you need to have, that you need strategies that satisfy each of them. Uh, and what I'm going to do for next week's podcast is bookend that with the essentials on the second visit. So catch you next week. If you like today's episode, then you will love the Retention Recipe 2.0. It's an online workshop that is broken into 33 lessons and has over seven hours of content, which will teach you to confidently communicate the value of proactive chiropractic in the first 12 visits. So if we want to have long-term retention, if we want people to stay with us for months, years, and reap the really amazing health benefits that happen with long-term chiropractic care, we need to set the foundation for that in the first 12 visits. So the approaches in the retention recipe 2.0 are based on state-of-the-art influence strategies that are effective, ethical, and they're enjoyable to use. They will help you to have more fun, less stress, and increase your retention, which means more practice growth and less always being on the hunt for new people. Check it out in the link in the show notes.